Thank you for listening to the Bible preaching ministry of Dr. Tim Pollock at the Home Church of Lodi, California. You can get more information about our church and about starting a relationship with Jesus Christ at www.thehomechurch.net. Our prayer is that this message from God's Word will renew your heart and mind today.
So the patriarch of the church assigned 500 priests to give the soldiers one-on-one catechism, crash course. Then the soldiers and Ivan, 500 of them, were all going to be immersed in one mass baptism. Crowds gathered from all over Greece. What a sight it must have been. 500 priests in their black robes and tall hats. 500 soldiers, over a 1,000 people walking into that blue Mediterranean desert. The soldiers wore their battle uniforms with all the regalia, ribbons of valor, medals of courage, and their weapons. It was truly an incredible sight and moment. But somehow there was a problem. It was brought to their attention that the church prohibited soldiers from being members of the church. They would have to either give up their livelihood. The least that they could do was commit that they would never shed blood. Well, after a hasty round of diplomacy, the problem was solved quite simply. So they got ready for the baptism. The words were spoken. The priests began to baptize them. And then, as they were about to go under, each soldier reached to his side, took his sword, lifting it high above his head. The soldiers were totally immersed. Everything, that is, except for their fighting honor and their faith. That is a true historical fact. It's been called the unbaptized honor. But it's a powerful picture, I think, of what I see in modern Christianity today. There are many unbaptized people. Now, I mean that literally. People who really say they've accepted Christ but have never been immersed as God taught in Scripture. Good people, really, but unwilling to make that commitment to make the plunge, that is, to be a disciple. But I think still others, in more of a metaphorical way, are unbaptized. That is, they have unbaptized arms. They're not willing to baptize their career in Christ. They're not ready to baptize their family in Christ. Maybe there are unbaptized talents, and I'm sure there are unbaptized checks. That is, yeah, we're good with God, we're good with Christianity even, but we're not going to do this whole discipleship thing. I mean, that would be way overkill. But, my friend... We know that because of what Christ has done for us, we have salvation, and it is totally, totally free. God has given it to us. If we accept that by faith, then we are saved. But it's not without a cost. This is not like one of those bait-and-switch Internet offers that we hear of as free. I heard of one guy that was offered a job-building Egyptian pyramid. It just turned out to be a pyramid scheme. (laughs) But friends, all of our sins are paid for in full, free, by the substitutionary life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We contribute nothing. It is called by God the gift of God. The only thing you can do with the gift is accept it. The pyramid scheme does. Yet at the same time, while it's free, the cost for being a disciple 
his heart was going to beat himself tonight. No doubt about it. If you become a disciple, you will be rejected by some people. And very likely persecution to some people. And maybe, I hate to say this, but it very well could happen. Even in our lifetime, even here in America, there could be martyrdom for Bible believers. Why did Jesus look to the crowd and say, okay, we've gone about as far as we can go together. I need you to think about this stuff. I'm glad you're following, but he turns and he looks at them. And in 11 verses in Luke 14, 25 through 35, contains an amazing library of converts and wisdom. Wisdom, wise truth to be sure but hard truth. In fact, three times he says in those 11 verses, he said, if you don't do this, you can't be a disciple. Now, it's not typical for a pastor to stand up and say, I don't think you can cut it. I mean, that's just not usually what a pastor does unless he wants anybody to come back. But that is, in fact, what Jesus said. He said, I don't know. I'm looking at you, but I'm wondering, do you have what it takes well, if you do this, you don't. If you do this, you don't. He was there saying, look, this matter of salvation is great, and I'm glad that you're accepting it for those of you that are. And for those of you that aren't, what are you doing? Why not? But if you want to be a disciple, which, hallelujah, has amazing truth, truth to power, the glory of Christ answers the prayer, closeness to the Lord. I mean, there are so many benefits to discipleship, but it's not without a cost. And so over these next weeks, the call is to follow Christ. But the deal is we don't get to follow him on our terms. That's the whole thing about discipleship. It's really all or nothing. Jesus drew a line in the sand and he said, come on this way. Because that's what a disciple does. There's really, in Christianity, early Christianity, there was no such thing as people that were nominal. I mean, it, radical Christianity wasn't a, a thought. You were a Christian. That was a disciple. That's what we're going to be talking about over these weeks. And today, stepping away from the crate, crowd, making a choice. Are you willing? Can you? Will you? It's our heart. Father, bless us today. Thank you for this true story that gives us a great jumping off place for it. Lord, meet with us today. I've already been so blessed and commented on, but thank you. Holy Spirit, now take these truths, drive them to our spirit. May we, Lord, be a different people because of this conversation today. We're in the book of Luke. The historical New Testament historical book of Luke is absolutely amazing. It's the longest, has the most words of any of the four Gospels. It has materials in it that the other Gospels don't have. Luke himself was very unique among the disciples. Some were very uneducated and some were just uh, kind of salt of the earth. Not Luke. He was uh, very highly trained, educated. He was a physician. He became a bivocational preacher an evangelist under Paul. Eventually, he became a scribe, 
touched by the Holy Spirit to give us his word. So we're in Luke 14. We're going to read verses 25 and 26 together. Now, there are a couple of words here that we'll highlight, multitude, and in verse 26, it. Big it. All right, let's, so we're reading out of the King James Version. You can read here on the screens or from your Bible or from your tablet there or phone. All right, let's read it out loud. Ready? Begin. And there went great multitudes with him, and he turned and said unto them, If any man come to me, and hate not his father, and mother, and wife, and children, and brethren, and sisters, yea, in his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. Now those are grammatic words. We'll be explaining those over the next few weeks. But today we want to talk about the multitude. Notice the words in verse number 25, there went great multitudes, great multitudes, not just big crowds, not just crowds, but big crowds, huge crowds. It says they went with him, oftentimes following him from place to place. Verse 26, if, if, now that's the deal. God never makes anybody choose something. He does not. We have the free will as humans, if. The big if. And it suggests then that the next move was on our part. And I've played as an avid tennis player for many years. Had some ankle surgery and couldn't really do that much anymore. But uh, in tennis, the way it works is when the ball is on your side of the net, it's your turn. It's one of those basic things about tennis. Did you know that God said the ball's in your court? Not my court. I've done what I did. It's up to you. If. It's on you now. I've done what I'll do. Now, I'll, I'll keep hitting the ball back, but you've got to hit it back to me. That's the way it works. If. And notice what it says, if any man comes. It means we've got we've to turn towards Christ, make a choice to move towards Him. And I've always been grateful when I see people make steps towards the Lord, even baby steps, and I'm proud of them. But notice what it says, if you come to me, come to me. And then it says, you cannot be my disciple. So twice he says, this is a very personal. Discipleship is very personal. It's not coming to a principle. It's not coming to a plan. It's coming to the person of Christ. How much different that is than any world religion. If you wanted to be a good Muslim, it would be about embracing a harsh Sharia law. And you just keep trying and trying and trying to do this law and pray it up and whatever. If you were in Judaism, it would be about following never-ending rules and regulations. It's just about the rules. If you were a Hindu, it would be about a a futile sense for self-realization. When do you really know yourself? When do you really know, you know, who you are? I mean, it's a never-ending search. It's about yourself. But with Christianity, it's so much different. It's not about the rules or the laws. It's about Jesus himself. It's about the Christ. In fact, discipleship is not only coming to Jesus. It is being like Jesus. Now, what is a disciple? If I were to ask you, what is a disciple? What would you say? 
Now, technically speaking, we know the word means learner, right? That's what his wife was, a learner. But someone who is a disciple of another person is not just a learner, they're actually a learner from that person. But in discipleship from the Bible, it is not only learning from Christ, it is learning to be like Christ. In fact, the essence of being a believer is not just taking on the name Christian or disciple. In fact, did you know that in the Gospels, Jesus never one time called his followers Christians? He called them disciples. In fact, it's common today for us to say Christian. It's actually seldom that people say a disciple. But actually, in the Bible, that would be what you would normally say, that disciple over there, that disciple over there. It was the sense that we had really embraced Christ. We were all in for God. In fact, the word Christian wasn't even used until many years later in the book of Acts, chapter 11. Chapter 11, verse 26, it says the disciples or the Christians, they were first called Christians in Antioch. In fact, it was probably a, a term, a, a derogatory term, but like many terms, it stuck and we own up to it. It's not a bad word I mean, to be a follower of Christ or someone who is a Christ-like. That's great. But over these next weeks, our plan is to unpack these 11 verses very slowly. I will say there are some very hard sayings. There is a depth to that. There is a cost to consider. There is a foe to face. There is a savior to share. These are things that are very hard things, really, in a sense. Uh, he's going to make some real demands. Now, why did Jesus say these things? Well, he was closing out his earthly ministry. He was in Judea, and really he was just a few miles from Jerusalem, and he was headed there. This is his final trip. He would ultimately be crucified there. And he had, his focus was laser-like. In fact, the Old Testament prophet Isaiah said he had face, set his face like a flint on Christ. He full well knew what would be at stake. He, in his omniscience as God, he knew in his humanity, he was held against it for sure. But he also knew this. He knew that those who would claim him, those who would own him, those who would be a disciple, would very likely have some tough days. I mean, if they killed the master, they're not going to especially go easy on you. And so he looks at them, and he kind of forewarns. To be forewarned is to be forearmed. Thank God that that's what God does. He doesn't sell it easy. He doesn't do the fine print. So as it says in verse 25, that there was great multitudes with him, huge crowds, and he turned. Now, the Bible's very clear that physically, and really, I think it's in a sense of what he was doing at that time. This was a this was like a a, a, a change in the way things had been done. He had been kind of biding his time, giving folks a little bit of room, and then he said, uh, "Really, there's no more time. You need you need to deal with this." And so he turned. It says he turned and he looked them eyeball to eyeball. Now, to be honest, looking at someone eyeball to eyeball is a little unnerving. 
I mean, if they're a stranger, you don't want to look at them for more than a few seconds, you know. But um, if they're someone you love, it even can be kind of uh, hard, you know. But you look them eyeball to eyeball. It was a very poignant moment. So who knows how many were there, hundreds, maybe thousands. But Jesus stopped, and he zeroed in, eyeball to eyeball. And he was looking at them. I've had folks tell about the, the camera, you know, that when you're looking at that camera, he said, it looks like you're looking right at me. It is. If you were there, I'm looking right at you. And imagine for a moment that Jesus is looking you eyeball to eyeball. Now, folks, looking eyeball to eyeball with anybody can be a little bit unique, I'll tell you. But with the Son of God, we're told a little bit what the Bible says about his eyes. Revelation chapter 1 and verse 14, it says his head and his hair were white like wool. This is John's vision, and is white like snow, and his eyes were as a flame of fire. I can remember looking into the steel blue eyes of my faithful shock dad. I was young and had messed up, about ready to face the music, and I will tell you, looking at that man's eyes was enough to melt an ice cube. Of course, in today's snowflake world, these poor parents are told by the purple hairs <laughs> that they need to negotiate with their child. My dad negotiated with me. It was his way or the highway. That was the negotiation. Boy, when those eyes would look at you, man. Now, why did Jesus face the crowd? Why did he look them eyeball to eyeball? Because it was a great multitude of people. But it doesn't say it was a great multitude of disciples. He was well aware that in a crowd that size, there were those who were traveling with him, and like those who traveled with Moses in the Old Testament, a mixed multitude. Not everybody was on board. They were eager, they were excited, they were curious, whatever, but not all of them were disciples. Who were these people? What different kinds of people were there? You know, large crowds can be an easy place to hide. It's easier to remain anonymous. And that was certainly true with the large crowds that were following the Lord that were making their way to Jerusalem. This was his final trip to the holy city. There was a huge conversion for humanity, a vast sea of men and women. He was about ready to go to Calvary. What would happen? And so this was a time he needed to address them and talk to them and to give them a clear message. This was no time to have an uncertain call. So our Lord said, well, I want you to find out who you are. I want you to kind of figure out in this multitude because he was going to test them by what he was saying. Now, our Lord already has given us the types of people that are in any crowd. We find that in Luke chapter 8. But in Proverbs chapter 4, God says, keep thy heart with all diligence for out of it are the issues of life. In Luke chapter 4, Jesus describes the different kinds of people, really the different kinds of hearts, because out of the heart comes the life. Where is your heart today? What classification would you fall in? And so in, in Luke chapter 8, verses 5 through 15, we have the parable of the sower and the different seeds. Here, he gives us the four types of people, 
these are the four types that were actually there in Luke chapter 14 as well. And so let's look at these. We'll spend the majority of our time in Luke 8 today. Four types of people that were following Jesus. Four classifications, four hearts, really. Because out of the heart comes the life. The first one was the stubborn. So in that group that day, there were stubborn people. People who just, you know, they were just there. They weren't really to, ready to sign on by any means. Luke chapter 8, verse 4. And when much people were gathered together and were to be commended for gathering, made some effort, and there were come to him out of every city, wide a range of background, education level, and culture. And he spake to them by parables. So the crowd that followed Jesus in the last few weeks of his life was not unlike the crowd that followed him at other times. And so Jesus said, here's the type of people that think about God. Verse 5, a sower went out to sow his seed, and he sowed, and some fell by the wayside, and it was trodden down. The fowls of the air devoured it. Wayside. The stubborn. Now, what is the wayside? Well, it is simply a path through the crops around it or the field. It's the area where the soil has been trampled down, packed down by the traffic. Our Lord's point was this. There are many people's hearts that are like this. They have become byways and thoroughfares, hardened, walked on by the world's constant lies. Truth has been trampled in their soil. As a result, they've been hardened and desensitized to that which is good and that which is right. As a result, any good seed just sits on the surface and becomes nothing more than bird seed. And he goes on to refer to these demon birds that come and take the seed. We'll call them birds, bird brains, like so-called higher institutions of learning, like Harvard. By the way, Harvard was founded by pastors back in the day. And they will take the truth and they will lie about it and harden the hearts of people, maybe people who grew up right but then began to resist traditional values because they've been hardened and walked on. They begin to ignore the preaching of the Word of God and turn from their trainings and their Christian parents. As they get older, they begin to say, I don't know, are they gone to college? They begin to hear the media and all the things that happen, and they say, you know what, I, I just really can't believe anymore. You know, it's not that you can't believe, it's just that you won't believe. One Bible denier was saying something like this, you know, I read the Bible, but I just don't get anything out of it. A friend of his who was a God-fearing Christian said, well, you know, the Bible's a love letter, and maybe you're just reading somebody else's heart. It comes down to the heart, doesn't it? It comes down to who you love and who loves you. But the Bible warns of stubborn hearts. That's what Hebrews chapter 3, verses 7 and 8 says. It says, today, if you will hear. And that's a big if again. You know, people who say, oh, I just, you know, I just can't get it. I can't comprehend it. I'm no effect to it. You know, that's not, the, the problem is not with the seed. It's never with the seed. The seed is perfect. It's fine. We're talking about the soil. The soil hardens your heart. If you hear God's voice, don't harden your heart. 
it's really a sad thing when people get hard hearts because there's just no need for it to happen. People come to church and say, oh, you know, this church is such outdated ideas, misogynist. There's no such thing as a literal hell. But you know, there was a time when you believed in hell. You believed in heaven. You believed what the Bible says. That's because the heart was soft. The soil was fertile. The seed could get in. The problem's not the seed. The problem is the soil. The problem is the heart. That's exactly what John said in John chapter 12, verse 37. Jesus, it says in verse 37, had done many miracles before them, yet. Look at that big yet. Even though Jesus had done many miracles, they were in uh, still just not believing. Though he had done so many miracles before them, yet they believed not on him. That, according to the saying of Isaiah, the prophet might be fulfilled, which he spake, Lord, who hath believed our report? And to whom hath the arm of the Lord been revealed? Verse 39 then clarifies it. It says, therefore, they could not believe. And actually, that word could not just means they didn't. They had seen it all, but they had become hardened, a stubborn heart, something wrong with the truth, something wrong with the words of God. It's all about the heart. But when you can't let the heart, when you don't let the seed in, when you don't let the truth in, nothing can be done. Now, these people were drawn to Jesus like a house on fire. You know, people race down to see what's, what's going on, but, you know, see the smoke. They're like a moth to a light. But the idea of changing, accepting Christ, and really becoming, letting Him be Lord of your life, that's not something they're open to at all. They were hardened. On February 24th, 1948, one of the most unusual medical operations in history took place in the Ohio Ohio State University Research Department. A stony sheath was removed from around the heart of a 30-year-old young man by the name of Harry Messiah. When he was a little boy, he had been accidentally shot by a playmate with a 22 caliber rifle. The bullet had lodged close to his heart. But after consideration, they felt actually it'd be much safer to just leave it there. It wouldn't cause any trouble. However, over time, a lime deposit formed around that bullet and began to encase the heart and strain it. Operation was a delicate one, but finally when that stony coating was lifted from around the heart, and they say they kind of peeled it like an orange, they said immediately heart just expanded and began to pump normally. You know, I think there's a parable in that little illustration, and that is that in our life, even if we're not careful, we can allow our heart to become hardened by some injury or things that happen. And then God can come along and take away that hardened heart, and He can open it up if we'll just let Him do so. And so the first type of people, I think, that were there on that day were stubborn. Their hearts had gotten hardened. Truth had been stamped, trampled on, and the lies of the world had gotten that way that they just couldn't believe it anymore. It's not that they couldn't, it's just that they wouldn't. They're stubborn. And then number two, there was the superficial. Jesus looked at that crowd and he faced them face to face. And in that sea of humanity, he knew there were people that were stubborn. They knew the truth, but they just hardened. And then there were the superficial. Look at verse 6 of Luke chapter 8. And some fell upon a rock. 
little rock was there, had a little bit of soil, maybe a half an inch or so of soil. And as soon as it was sprung up, it withered away because it lacked moisture. Shallow, unthinking, not really serious about the relationship with God. No, Luke, verse 13 of that same chapter, on the rock, those are they which, when they hear, receive the word with joy. Which after a while they believe and in the time of temptation they fall away. These are the curious ones. I mean, they were curious about this guy named Jesus. Words out there about him. He was religious. They they heard that he claimed to be the Son of God. I mean, that alone would kind of go, check this out. This guy said, I'm the Son of God. Their curiosity was piqued. He had gone from village to village, and so they were following him. It was a skin-deep segment of those who followed Jesus. And it's the same today. There are countless people who are skin deep in their Christianity. They're drawn more to the religion of Christianity to the person Christ. Or maybe it was just the trappings of Christianity, the concepts, the traditions, but all very surface. Historic missionary David Livingston went to the remotest part of Africa After some time, his missions board wrote him and said, you know, some people from England here would like to come and join you. What is the easiest road to get where you are? And here's where he wrote that. He said, if they're looking for the easiest road, tell them to stay in England. I want people who will come even if there's no road at all. I wonder if that could describe you or I this morning. The easy road. I want the easy road to Africa. I want the easy road to serving God. I mean, you might be here and sense the emptiness that's in this world, and that's good. And maybe you're giving thought to standing before God. That thought makes you emotional, and it's good. Or maybe this morning you've been here, you enjoy the beautiful music. I mean, it spoke to you. How could it not? But you know, emotions, while good and God-driven, we must be careful that we're not given simply to emotionalism. Because emotions never saved anybody. The curious never get saved. There's a Christian writer by the name of Sidlow Baxter, and here's what he said. I like it. Listen closely. Salvation is the deepest work of God. Your emotions are the shallowest part of your nature. And God doesn't do his deepest work in the shallowest part. Emotions are great, but they tempt us to do that which is easy and often selfish. Judas was very emotional. He was wept bitterly and he felt so bad, but he was not saved. He was emotionally saved. I mean, he had become a follower of Jesus emotionally, but he wasn't truly saved. Here's what the Bible says in Acts chapter 16, verse 31. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Believe on. That word on means to just put your weight on. It's that Greek word pethuo. It means to rely on. Put all of your weight on Jesus. And you'll be saved. It doesn't say you have to feel it. And I know everybody wants an epiphany. I I know people want to have tears and they want to have shouts. And I will tell you, if you get saved, that will happen at some point. But it may not accompany salvation itself. Because God responds to faith, whether there's tears or not. He responds to faith, whether there's feelings or not. 
If you believe that Jesus Christ is Lord, if you are willing to accept Him as your Savior, if you're willing to say, I'm all in, I'm taking Jesus today, I'm turning from my sin and from this world, I'm accepting Jesus. If you'll do that by faith, regardless of how you're feeling, the Bible says you will be chosen. The stubborn ones. Then there was the superficial. Jesus said, look, he looked at the crowds. I'm, I'm all great, glad that you're with me. But in just a few short weeks here, you're going to see some things. You're going to endure some things that it's going to be incredible. And I need to know you're on board. And the stubborn, those that just refuse to accept, well, you have what you have. The superficial, just the emotions, that's not going to cut it. And then he said the selfish. Luke chapter 8 again, verse 7, some fell among thorns. The thorns sprang up and choked it away. He explains that in verse 14, the thorns, the seed that fell among thorns, are they which when they have heard, they go forth, but are choked with the cares and the riches and the pleasures of this life and bring forth no fruit to perfection. Here is one who the seed gets in. And in a sense, the seed gets down to the soil, but the seed never takes a hold. You know, the truth of the matter is, in any soil, in any heart, there's always two seeds. Jesus talked about that in Matthew chapter 13, verse 25. He said, you know, while men sleep, and that's the problem, we're asleep at the wheel, the enemy comes in and he sows tares, that's the word weed, among the wheat. And he went his way. In any heart, there are weeds and weeds, weeds and weeds. People who accept Christ and get saved are those who become weeds. But there are weeds there. There's bad seed in there. We have to choose to become a follower of Christ. And if you don't deal with those weeds, it's going to overgrow you. Jesus clarified this very issue in Luke chapter 13, verse 3. He said, Except you repent, you will all likewise perish. That's a pretty dramatic thing to say to a group. Look at them eyeball to eyeball and say, folks, I don't know any other way to say this, but you have to repent. You have to deal with the weeds. If you don't deal with the weeds, you are going to die and go to hell. Deal with it. Come on now. It's on you. The ball is in your court. Repent. And that's why so many people have a problem becoming a disciple because it says here the cares of the world. I mean, they're just busy making a buck, trying to do the next good thing, right thing, and that's all good. I mean, it's not that that's all evil. The fact is, though, you've got to let go of this world and take hold of Jesus with both hands. Are you all in? Or maybe a better thing to say is Jesus in or you. In John chapter 6, in the darkness of the night, the disciples are struggling against a strong wind to row their boat across the churning sea. Suddenly, amidst the darkness, the wind and the waves, they saw Jesus walking on the sea, frightened. They said, what's going on? And he said, well, don't be afraid. And notice what it says in Luke, excuse me, John 6, 21. Then they willingly received him into the boat. They willingly received him into the boat. With Jesus in their boat, they had peace. And they arrived at land 
they kept growing, surrounded by difficulties and problems. That's what we all are. We all face so many challenges. But with Jesus in your boat, folks, you'll get to the shore. You'll get to the shore with Jesus in your boat. Maybe not only in your boat, but if he's driving that boat, if he's the captain of the ship. That's why we need to say, Jesus, come into my boat. I want you, I accept you into my boat. Man, this is crazy out here. Financial problems, marital issues, school things, and you name it, health problems. Jesus, I need you in my boat. Troubles everywhere, blowing. But if you get Jesus in your boat, it makes all the difference in the world. You see, repentance is not being broken over your sin. It is being broken from your sin and unto Christ. That's what Matthew chapter 1, verse 21 says. They shall call his name Jesus. Why would they call his name Jesus? Because it means saving from sins. That's what it means. Jehovah saves from sins. For he shall save his people from their sins. A disciple doesn't say, you know what? I'm good. A little few weeds is fine. I'm good with weeds in my heart. No, a disciple says, I don't want any weeds. No room for weeds. We need to say Jesus Christ alone. Jesus Christ only. Jesus Christ always. I need to say, Jesus, I need you in my boat. I don't want to row in this life without Jesus with me. The selfish, for the most part, they were confused. Yes, but frankly, they wanted to be confused. They were choked by the cares of this world. They knew about Christ, but they did not know Christ. Like Judas, who was in charge of the money, they were more interested in money and more interested in the stuff of the world than they were in making a real follower of Jesus Christ. They wanted just a little bit of Jesus. That's what Judas wanted. He wanted the stuff of Jesus, but he didn't want all of Jesus. Pauline and I recently were in Carmel, and we like going down there to Monterey area. We went to a candy store there, and they had large trays of beautiful, delicious stuff. I mean, I think it's the best-looking stuff I've ever seen in my life. But I asked about the price in that big tray. I have no idea what it must have cost. Hundreds of dollars, I'm sure, but it was some fancy good stuff. And so I said, could I have five dollars? dollars, please. Now, to me, that was Judas. He looked at all that Jesus had, and it was beautiful. He looked at all that there was, but he only wanted five dollars from Jesus. Five dollars. And he fooled enough people that they all thought he was a Christian. They were convinced. But I think there are a lot of believers today that are that way. You've got it covered enough, but you're like Judas. You look like a Christian, you got $5 of Jesus. You're under a delusion, my friend. You may be called a Christian, but there's a huge difference between Christian and disciple. Am I stubborn? Am I superficial? Am I selfish? Thank God when Jesus looked at that crowd, he looked at them face to face and he said, all right, multitude, you're going to need to make some decisions here for your own sake. For your own sake, you need to make this decision. Are you just here and you're just just unwilling to accept the stubborn? Are you here and you're all emotional but no no deeper than that? Or are you here and you just want a little bit? You're selfish. 
He gets into the stuff of this world. Then he looked and he said, there are those who are sincere. In any group, there are those who are sincere. And I trust that's what we are here today. Jesus turned to look at them and said, what kind of heart do you have? Because out of the, it, out of the heart comes the very issues of life. Luke chapter 8, verse 8. Other fell on good ground and sprang up and bare fruit a hundredfold. It's amazing what can happen in your life others' life, your family's life, the influence you can have on this world if you let Jesus come in. Really spell out. When he said these things, he cried. He cried out, He that had ears to hear, let him hear. Can you hear Jesus just crying out, Folks, listen! Please listen to me. Stop for a second and listen for once. Do not keep going the way you're going. And praise the Lord, there are those who had hearing ears. They had left behind the old ways and they had sold out to Jesus. Consider with me just for a few moments that amazing group of disciples, mostly young. John chapter 1, you can look at it at a different time, but I'll just tell you about them. Those amazing 11 disciples, 12 really, but one of them was Peter. First of all, Jesus hooked two fishermen, big fish. John and Andrew, they came willingly. We're on board. They became disciples. Then Andrew turned around. Andrew was always finding somebody. He got his brother Simon. He got converted and immediately followed Jesus as a disciple. Then Jesus found Philip and he said, follow me. Jesus, Philip said, I'm on board. You got me. Philip then went to Nathaniel. Nathaniel said, if that's the Son of God, I'm going to follow him. Then in Matthew chapter 9, he reached out to a tax collector, an old heathen tax collector by the name of Matthew, full of greed. And this guy had a special heart. And he said, I'll follow you. The rest of the disciples, Thomas, Bartholomew, Thaddeus, James the Lesser, Simon, Mark chapter 3 tells about them. All of them made the choice, the radical choice, no, just the normal choice of lordship. Jesus, you're my Lord. They forsook the many to join the remnant. Have you ever realized that really God has always worked with a remnant? Look all the way back to Genesis. He always works with a remnant. Are you the remnant? Are you the few that are disciples? Nothing has changed over the centuries, really. We need to ask ourselves, where do I see myself? Now, in the following next Sunday, we're going to analyze what it really means and what's required to be a disciple of God. I must warn you, if you think today's message might have been a little strong, the words from our Savior are so strong. What type of person do you see yourself out here? Where are you in the multitude? Are you leaning in or are you leaning away? Are you saying, I'm ready. I'm buying into this. Radical Christianity is normal Christianity. Discipleship is free, but it will cost you everything. Christianity without discipleship really is Christianity without discipleship. The disciples invited Jesus into their boat. Is Jesus in your boat? Is he in your boat? Then Jesus 
We hope you enjoyed listening to the preaching and teaching from God's Word today. You can get more information about our church and about starting a relationship with Jesus Christ at www.thehomechurch.net. From all of us here at The Home Church in Lodi, California, thank you for joining us.